Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to the Once Bitten podcast, a Christmas special, a rip with your boy, John Vallis. And we are discussing the R word. And his latest piece, well, his first piece of writing, actually, and what a piece of writing it is. Money Messiah, God, Bitcoin, and the evolution of consciousness. Classic Vallis, you know, surface-level stuff. He really gets into it in this piece of writing. Definitely go and check it out and give him a round of applause, or hang out for Guy to read it. You, you decide, but either way, this is a topic that has been on John's mind and he's been trying to get to this end of this particular rabbit hole the best way that he can and sharing his thoughts with all of the plebs on his journey so massive thanks John for everything that you do great rip hope everybody enjoys it Merry Christmas but make sure guys that you are stacking your sats and John would echo everything I say in fact we have one of the same show sponsors the hardware wallet from uh, from Shift Crypto which is called the Bitbox 2 It's a Bitcoin-only wallet. Uh, go check it out. Hit the link in the show notes. You can get a 5% discount. And it's so critical you're taking control of your coins. Now, if you are not stacking, of course you should be. If you want to add up your stacking game and add to your stack, you can use services like Swan Bitcoin in the US, a great team of Bitcoiners, Relay across Europe, Coin Corner also across UK and Europe, and Bitcoin Reserve now as well. The Euro plebs are very well served. There's no excuses for not adding to your stack, getting your head down and focusing for this next couple of years as we stare down another halving in a few years' time. In a few years' time. Now, the last thing. Do you want to get to Miami? April 6th to 9th, 2022. Miami Beach, the Bitcoin conference, the biggest party going down for all Bitcoin plebs in all the lands. Get over there if you can. You can get a 10% discount if you hit the link in the show notes or use the code BITTEN at checkout. Happy Christmas, everybody. Happy end of year. Happy whatever. Let's go. Here's John. All right, John. Recording in progress. A bit of a busman's holiday for you today. You're the other <laughs> side of the mic. <laughs> All right, now, Lauren. How are you guys? Good. You? Very good. Are you excited for Christmas? Yes. I'm very excited for, uh, for Uncle Slim to, to uh, give me the uh, cowboy hat. Uncle cow- Slim? Yeah. To, to, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did promise you a pair of cowboy boots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a cowboy hat. And did you have a, did you have a Christmas list? Um, yes, I did. What's uh, on it? But like, yeah. Well, what was on it? I mean, don't keep the <laughs> listeners hanging. This is awful. No. Okay, I'm just going to say a couple. Dangly earrings. Right. Some socks because I'm running out of those. Mm-hmm. Um, money. Sats. So then sats. I just, sats, exactly. Basically sats, yep. yes, basically. Needs um, not wants, John. This is what I'm trying to learn. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like it'll be a successful Christmas if you get those things. Well, we had a run at fake Christmas last week, didn't we? So I 
already got all of that, except for the money, except for the Satoshis. Mm -hmm. I didn't get that yet. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand your dad is uh, not a big fan of the Christmas music, which is unfortunate, but, you know, maybe someday um, you'll, like, you'll be allowed to listen I to mean, that stuff. I mean, I understand him. I do understand where he's coming from. Lauren, like, <laughs> you got to get into the spirit no, somehow. No, like, Christmas like, music like, is the way to do I it. I mean, I like the turkey. I like the presents. I like the tree. The Christmas, I, I, I mean, I like the Christmas songs, but I know where Daddy's coming from. Like, I, like, like they are a bit cringy, and they do get stuck in your head for like fifth. Like, I started to get Christmas songs in my head in October. October. It wasn't even. If they're filled with magic. What's wrong with that? It fills you with magic and joy. Mariah fills you with magic and joy, John. You, yes, you, she does. You, you've watched too much Christmas movies. <laughs> I've only watched Home Alone 1 and 2 so far this year. I only watched four Christmas movies. Those two, The Grinch with Jim Carrey. And then on Christmas Eve, I watched The Santa Claus with Tim Allen. So I'm pumped. I still have, I still have two more to watch. Not, uh, I'm a big Christmas, big Christmas guy. Christmas Vacation? You don't, you don't get into that? No. All, the, all those like family classics don't really do it for me. Okay, mm. then that means... Uh, well, then other than the ones I mentioned. You think of Daddy as a Grinch then? yeah i don't know why I don't, I don't i wouldn't go that far he's too nice of a character to be a grinch but i mean any you know if, if you're not down with the christmas music it's kind of like not liking dogs it makes you suspect in my mind a little bit you know? <laughs> well i like dogs <laughs> <laughs> yeah the uh the christmas music man is it's too cringy for me i i can't do it especially the the fiat poppy stuff is just the worst uh, you know, if you if you get a good old bit of Sinatra crooning away, then yeah, I can stomach that. That's all fine, mm -hmm. no mm -hmm. problems there. Just not on loop. Uh, but you know, what was the one that was on the other day? Like it's ridiculous. Okay, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. Like what are we doing? Like what is that? Like, it's a classic. It's awful. It's terrible. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> It's nonsense. You got to embrace the cringe and, and the classic Christmas no, music. No, you know? no, no, we're fine. Like Charlie Brown Christmas? That sounds I, weird, but. I prefer the pretzels. Little Are Anne you... Murray, little Michael Bublé with some remakes of the classics. Come on. I would mm. trade a pretzel for all those. I, I mean, That's I'll insanity. trade, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll trade the songs for a pretzel, other way around. Right. Yeah. A pretzel? Yes. What's so good about a pretzel? I oh! <laughs> you know. You mean like a big bready one with the caramel dip and stuff? Caramel dip? No, it has to no, be salty. No, it has to be John. salty. It has to be salty. Yeah, but you you dip the, like the, you dip them in different dips, no? Oh or you just God. eat it straight up? These guys Who don't go with the dip. <laughs> <laughs> Once a year, you get the, cheese the... dip, caramel dip. No, there's no uh, dip. Chocolate dip. No dip. Straight up, all. straight, straight up, up pretzel. Salt. Straight up salt. Oh my god! You trade trade all the Christmas songs for that? Yes, I would. It has to be big though. What and the, the, a little bit of context: the Christmas market here. There's always a little hut that sells like the freshly baked pretzels, you know, and this is what the kids like love. Two years ago, I waited like two years ago. I waited for two years to get a pretzel, and no pretzel came. Oh right, out yeah, because it was now. shut down last year. Yeah. <laughs> So but see, here's the beautiful thing about those Christmas markets. Pretzels and Christmas music together makes it so magical. No, 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 That's no. Just switch that around. Pretzel, pretzels and ice skating. Just like straight well, up. Well, yeah. Christmas music. That's nice too. 
That's nice too. Right, can we move on from Christmas now? <laughs> back, to, back to the podcast. Do you have any actual uh, questions for John? Um, for Uncle Blank. Uncle Blank, yeah. Have you filled that blank yet? Uh, yeah, I'm just going to call him Uncle John. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty easy to figure out. Well, Very creative. We, you, you kept Thank him you. waiting Thank months you. for that. And now he... Or we could call it Uncle Christmas. Yeah, Uncle, Uncle Love Christmas songs. Ooh, I'll take it, Uncle Christmas. Uh, Uncle go. Christmas songs. <laughs> Uncle Christmas songs. <laughs> All right. Now, do you have any other questions, uh, or are you going to let us get on with this podcast? Yeah, I don't think I have any other questions. No? <laughs> wait, 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 wait. This is probably the most useless question, and I know what you mm -hmm. want for Christmas. But what would you want for Christmas? Alex, and, and like you cannot, but like like not Bitcoin, unaccepting Bitcoin. Darn, that's what I was gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were uh, gonna say that. That's why. That's why I said that. For Christmas, I would like, especially this year, because I'm not home. But I would like to sit around the fire with my family and have some eggnog and listen to some of those nice Christmas songs and just have a good time with everybody. That's, that's like what, that would that would be the best. Just like switch the eggnog out with a the pretzel, then then you'll be yeah good. sure pretzel without the dips eggnog. without the dips. <laughs> to well, each their own, Lauren. Maybe uh, he could dip a pretzel into the eggnog. Oh Ooh. my god! There you go. Look, he likes the sound of that. So that's mm -hmm. all good. You see, like yeah, because John's a political refugee right now. He can't be home with his family because his country's gone as batshit crazy as most of the other countries around the world. Mm -hmm. So he had to escape. He had yeah. to run away. And now mm -hmm. can't be with his family at Christmas. And we're trying to reverse that year, this year. We're, we're flying out tomorrow on Christmas Eve. Yay. We've been wading through the stacks of paperwork and um, doing all the uh, necessary hoop jumping to be able to uh, get on a flight um, as, an, as a pure blood to family. UK? Yeah. So uh, we shall see. That's our mission well, tomorrow. That'll be nice. That'll be very nice. Mission Christmas. If if we can't like like <laughs> uh, if we can't get there, then Daddy was like, "Oh, we're going by car. We can't get there. We're going by boat. If we can't get there, we're mm -hmm. walking. If we yeah, can't but... get there, we're swimming." Yeah, and I'm just but... like, I think the walking and the swimming part that I'm not gonna do. Yeah, yeah, uh, mm. it's a mission. Classic. Happening. I'll be home for Christmas. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So like, when we're gonna gonna go in the airport, me and Samuel, and maybe. Sophia, probably not Caitlin, are going to put our Christmas hats on. We're just going to walk through the airport like adorable, so then they let us through the gate. <laughs> they couldn't deny you. They, they can't deny a couple no. of cute little elves. Yeah, a couple of cute yeah. little kids who haven't seen that. When, when, well, I actually seen one of the other we, could, uh, we, we should actually just you, do the conga through the thing. Nobody stops a conga. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> like you just fire a conga up, yeah, everyone joins. Conga, like, you can go anywhere yeah. with a conga. No questions like, asked. Yeah. <laughs> they usher you through. <laughs> they join. <laughs> so it should, yeah, totally, totally. All right, now we're gonna get serious. Uh, yeah, okay. okay. So, uh, yeah, uh, I have nothing else. I'll say, good, say goodbye so, to yeah, Uncle Christmas. Okay. Bye, Uncle Christmas. Merry Christmas, Lauren. Bye, Uncle Song Christmas guy. <laughs> Bye. See ya. Okay, I'm just going to call you Uncle Christmas. Okay. I like it. To say. See ya. See ya. This, is, this, this podcast is going to age well when people find this one in July. <laughs> well, they'll know where I stand on Christmas. That's all that matters. Absolutely. You've drawn a line in the sand there. Uh, although mm. I, th I think we I'll both have. I'll get you someday. 
I'll get you someday. We'll sit down and we'll have some of that eggnog and spice rum and I'll blast the tunes and the fire will be crackling and I'll see that sparkle in your eye and you'll know that this is the right way to do things. I'll be all right with that. I'll definitely be all right with that. <laughs> I look forward to that day, mate. We, we've actually got to meet in person anywhere, first of all. Like, uh, let's, let's sort that one out. Miami? You going to the conference? We can't get in. At all? What do you mean? No, it's you, you, you're not allowed again? to. Oh, you're not allowed to yes, enter yes, unless yes. you've had the vaccine, right? So that's right. That's right. There's no way uh, unless uh, we find some um, some papers. Uh, mm. Then I don't know. We'll see. But for now, well, maybe things will be different by then. I don't think so, mate. Do you? These fucks just seem to be intent on ruining people's lives, and I put zero trust mm. in anyone in these positions of power because that they've they've snatched so much power from you know the people and the people still seem so willing for that to just lay down and happen so no we're still yeah. a long way in this man we've still got uh, one or two years of this bullshit. and then yeah what's going to be yeah, left over right? right you have to take a test every time you take a flight for the rest of your life like you now have to take your shoes and belt off because of freaking and you can't travel like just don't get me started it's yeah not it doesn't <sighs> once it's in place it's really hard for it to go away right yeah so like will will masks on airplanes be a thing forever now i think so that retarded be fucking horrible yeah uh, but uh, i don't know man it's um well yeah rough times ahead but better times beyond that so let's yeah keep absolutely our, keep our eyes on the prize um and that is the only thing that gives a lot of us hope right that's uh <clears throat> that's the only thing that's keeping us Huh? writing, doing podcasts, uh, whatever it is, uh, is because, you know, the, you, you wake up in the morning and you do have that thing to hang on to. I, I, I can't imagine what it'd be like to be a normie right now. Um, well, <laughs> ignorance is bliss, I guess, you know, that's all I can muster because most of the normies I know don't have much of an issue. You know, they'll, they'll lament and moan about what's going on. Like, you know, if, especially if they're a small business owner, and they'll be annoyed by like, you know, the fourth wave and another lockdown and all this stuff, but they don't seem too bothered by Do they else secretly going love it in regards though, John? to their freedoms and stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, Stockholm syndrome and being told what to do, you know, you, you don't need to formulate your own perspective and, and, and have faith in your own certainty if, if someone else is leading the, you know, steering you in, in whatever direction. So I'm sure there's a bunch of that kind of stuff wrapped up in it all, but the punchline is they don't seem to care very much right now. Hopefully that changes over time. But <clears throat> the best thing that, or I, the only thing we can really do is focus on the solution, right? Mm -hmm. And as much as it's it's tough, especially like if you go, you do a doom scrolling session on Twitter and you, you just like, oh my God, the world is so horrible. I mean, two things. One, regardless of what you think is going on and why it's going on, the only solution is to focus on, well, the only thing to do is focus on what you think is the solution. And that's what we both try to do. But the other thing is like you step out of your door and if you didn't know what was going on in the world, if you didn't have Twitter or the news, you know, there's a lot of good still. Like I step out of my door here and there's sun and there's, you know, nice people around and all that kind of stuff. And so it's like, you're not as surrounded by the madness in meat space as you are in, in the digital space. And there's, you know, you got to remember that, you know, there's a lot of good people around, even if they are brainwashed and 
deluded and hysterical and stuff like that. So, you know, we, we, uh, we forge on and try to make the best of it and, and focus on brighter days ahead. But, you know, I, I think we all are anticipating or at least preparing for a challenging couple of years here. It's crazy, isn't it? Like I, I, everything you just said, I've been saying to myself the last six to nine months, maybe even longer. And, and you walk outside and you, you see the birds flying around. You see it, you know, like uh, just nature for what it is. Go for a walk in the forest. And we're literally the only species on the damn planet that believe there is some kind of bug out there just trying to hunt us down and kill us all one by one. It's absolute <sighs> madness. We're like, the, yeah. it, it, it's nonsense. But anyway. I mean, the pandemic's over if you turn off your TV, right? That's the punchline for most people. But, but yeah, but then most people you know, cannot turn off their TV. Like it's just impossible yeah, for them to do it. It's everyone's plugged into such everyone's plugged into the same narrative. And obviously that narrative is manipulated and controlled by certain people. Um, even if it's not a massive overarching conspiracy, like, you know, what shows up on the news is obviously determined by somebody, right? And then it seems to be determined in the same way by a lot of somebody's. Um you know, th th this was, have you ever, I think I referenced this before, but have you seen the movie, The Network from like 1975 or something like that? Anyways, this, this no. newscaster kind of goes crazy and he goes on these epic rants on his news show about how people are addicted to the TV. And you, you know, he goes on like, you dress like the tube, you act like the tube, you know, this is, you'll do anything uh, to listen to the tube, right? Like your whole entire perspective is formed by the tube you know this is the most awesome goddamn force in the universe and blah 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 and uh anyways some great rants uh but it's so true you know like even still even with all other media that's available to people the mainstream and you know algorithms mess with people too for sure but the the mainstream news sources are i mean they dictate reality and how fucking terrifying is that that people uh, have a have a reality and a perspective implanted in them through that media, rather than constructing one based on their own uh, rationality and logic and determining of information and and sifting through information and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's complete madness, and we live in clown world, and we know that, and we try to bring some some sense and rationa rationality to it, I guess. And it's so clear it's been co-opted. Like I don't even like beyond clear. Is so obvious. We have the data. We know that there's, uh, you know, certain NGOs and philanthropic figures that are just plowing tens of millions into news channels or news media channels, or you know, in a side door into their charity arms, whatever else. It's it's out there. It takes one yeah. duck duck go search to find this stuff. So we know it's being co-opted. We know mm. the narratives are being formed. They're being written by someone. But then like, even if these, uh, if these guys aren't watching the news per se, but they will be every day, look at the, the soap operas that they're addicted to or any other programs or BBC dramas that you see all over the UK. Yeah. They, you know, it's called programming for a reason, <laughs> right? Yeah. The programs yeah. you watch are programming you and there are script writers behind that. And these films or documentaries or whatever only get made if they're well-funded. And you got to always look like just take two or three steps back. Who's funding this? What's the narrative and why? And like a perfect example is that one on Netflix, which people go on and on about turn people into vegans overnight. Uh, what's it called? Game changers or something. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, like, uh, all right, go tell me who directed it, then go tell me who funded it, then go, you know, see what stocks they're invested in and whatever else. It won't take you long to unravel these narratives, but people yeah. just want to sit there, watch it, and then make life-changing decisions on the back of it uh, and go yeah. around pointing fingers to everybody else like, you're ruining the planet. It's crazy. You know, n- none of this is new, though. You know, like... nope. I've been of the opinion that like 95% of people, if not more, are completely out of their minds for like the majority of my life, you know, for that very reason, like they're being bombarded with this programming. And it's so funny that people think that they can watch like three hours of content, like TV shows, movies, and quote unquote, know it's not real, though still be very emotionally invested in it and affected by it. And then like commercial break, news, oh, real now, right? And to think that they can, there, do you think that they can so make, make such a clear demarcation between unreal and real and not be influenced by the, by the, by the real effect that both have on them, right? Like, it's just, as you say, it's, it's, it's programming from day one and it's, and it's programming to elicit certain responses, whether it's a quote unquote fictional program or whether it's a news program, there's still an intent behind the programming, right? And the perhaps the primary intent is to keep you watching. And how do you keep people watching? Well, maybe you invoke fear, maybe you you stir up other emotions and that kind of stuff. And does it matter if it's factually true? Well, factually true is a pretty hard thing to determine most of the time. So what's more relevant is that, is it affectionally true, right? Like, does it affect you in the most profound way? Because that's a form of truth in itself, right? To when when people like, if something affects you more than something else, well, that, that says something about its relevance, at least to you. And so we live in this world where everyone is being, everyone's emotions are being manipulated, and everybody's fears and insecurities are being played on constantly to manipulate their behavior. And you know, it's almost like again, like even if you don't want to invoke a grand conspiracy, at a certain point people being so led astray in so many different ways for so long, all you need is like a broader overarching fear narrative for them all to go hysterical, whether it's climate change, COVID, um, terrorism, be invisible. whatever, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's got to be invisible, hard to nail down, you know, impossible to stop. And, uh, and everyone loses their, their even, even more loses their minds over it all, you know? And so, to me, this is just an acceleration. It's not anything materially different than what's been going on for 50 years, 100 years, ever, you know? Has, 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 there's always been a masses, right? You read books about uh, uh, observations of certain eras in the past, whether it's the 1700s, the 1000s, the Roman era, there's always masses and the masses are the ones that like are easy to manipulate and are manipulated and lead to mass hysterias and lead to mass killings and lead to mass political movements like you know which is why it's so important that we stress the 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 paramount importance of people have like owning their own minds developing their own perspective developing their own rationality and logic not taking for granted or taking on on faith the words or the facts or the perspectives of anybody else sure listen and then put it through through your, your own thing and that that's also why it's so important to have your own perspective and then society more generally grounded on certain principles because 
you know, and this, this is, you know, the segue into the religious domain, I guess, because if everything is always subjective and relative, then I, I think inevitably you wind up in a, in a problematic situation, right? Because you can't, the validity of any one assertion cannot supersede another if you just accept everything as subjective and relative. But if you say there are certain foundational principles that should not be violated, for example, the sovereignty of the individual to choose what they put or don't put into their body. If you think that that can be violated, then you, you wind up in chaos. Alternatively, if you instantiate that as a foundational principle, then you've got a chance at having an, an order that can be sustained you know, productively uh, and peaceably into the future. And, it, and this is what the religious enterprise has been. And then the political enterprise, the enterprise of, of law has taken principles from the religious enterprise and instantiated them in a you know, social cultural law, but you know, there's a very clear connection between the two to say, okay, if we abide by these principles, we have a chance or we increase our chances of having a, uh, being able to interact with one another on a large scale collective basis without chaos, without destruction, without you know, everything descending into um, everything falling apart. And, you know, among them were, for example, freedom of speech. You can say whatever you want, as long as it doesn't, you know, incite stampede, you know, fire in a crowded room, something like that. You are the one who determines what you put in your body. You are sovereign over your, over your own self and, you know, a few others down the line. And those seem to work fairly well over the course of time. But what I think we're learning, I suppose, is that it's really difficult to maintain those principles over time, uh, no matter how well established or articulated they are. Like in the case of the founding, you know, principles of the U.S., like they were brilliant, right? Mm -hmm. Many of them, you know, uh, determined by flawed and imperfect human beings, of course, but, you know, some really good stuff in there, but absent and, you know, an attempt to to construct it in a way that there's checks and balances and, you know, to, you know, really to make, to try to make sure that these rules stay the rules and that you can't, you know, uh, you can't uh, violate them, but they get violated over time. And uh, this is one of the, one of the things, of course, that makes Bitcoin so interesting, but <clears throat> it's, it's a real problem that we, we do away with certain principles at our own peril. And, you know, as I referenced in, in right at the beginning of the piece, like today, it's, it's funny how the sophisticated uh, position on, on religion has become, well, there's no man in the sky, bro. Like, that's the sophisticated perspective on religion. Like, that's not sophisticated at all. That's just, that's lazy and, and stupid. Right, uh, but that's that's what people think. Like, if you think that way, you're amongst the uh, the intellectual class or something. Uh, whereas I think it's a far it's it's been a far more uh, nuanced and sophisticated enterprise, and it's certainly been uh, corrupted and stewarded in ways that have been detrimental to its purpose. But um, there's a lot of wisdom there, and again, we do away with it at our peril. And of course, you know Nietzsche's famous saying that you know God is dead and we killed him and something like you know uh 
know, the rivers will run wet, red with the blood of, of, of people as a result, or I can't remember the exact quote, but I do think that's partially what's going on here is that, you know, if we live in a, a purely relativistic subjective culture, where, what grounding do we have in any truth or principles and how can we expect to have order coalesce if everything is relative and chaotic? So, mm-hmm. you know, in, in that kind of a way, what's happening today is not really surprising at all, but it's still really scary because, it, you know, it, it, chaos is a, is a nice word to say on a podcast, but like in the real world and as examples uh, throughout history show, like it can be really bad for a lot of people. So that's what we try to hope to avoid by doing what we do, you know. And the, obviously, we're here to discuss your, your article, which is titled Money, Messiah, uh, God, Bitcoin, and the Evolution of Consciousness. Fucking hell, man. Like you, <laughs> I've been reading this for the last three days and going back over it and, you know, pull it, you've seen me tweet it out. And, um, yeah. and I was, uh, yeah, having another crack at it today. And I've been making notes and I want to, you know, pull on some, some of these threads. And I know you and I have been DMing each other a while and uh, this has been playing on your mind and you've been trying to get this piece of writing out for God knows how long mm-hmm. and you finally pushed the uh, pushed the button and, and, and here we have it. It's, it's out there. First of all, what was that process like for you? Like having all of this shit milling around in your head and you, you, I think you've confided in me before that you don't find the... Uh, well, you look as, as writing as a task rather than something you enjoy doing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. You know, I think I, I much prefer, it feels much more effortless for me to get a bit excited on a rant and just let the stream of consciousness flow. Right. And sometimes it works out and it's articulate and clear and insightful. And other times it's not, you know, and that's just the nature of the beast. The writing you know, for me, it was like, but that stream of consciousness doesn't, you don't get to direct it that much. It just kind of, who knows where thoughts come from and why the, you know, the next word out of your mouth is what it is. And, you know, writing obviously allows you to put things in a little bit more of a structured format and really uh, understand them a bit more clearly. And I think there's great benefit to that, even if your primary media is speaking, because then when you speak about it, you kind of can refer to the clarity that you establish when in the, in the writing. And so for that reason, like I, I, I can see it becoming a regular thing for me and I want it to be because the back and forth between the two, I think supports each other, let's say. And, um, but as a, as a, you know, a, a task or something, it's, it's, it's painful. <laughs> it really is like, you know, and I didn't even, these thoughts were, were swirling around in my head for a while, of course, but I sat, you know, when I first sat down to write this, it was like earlier in the year and the whole like Bitcoiners are toxic thing was kicking off. And I sat down to write an article being like, no, Bitcoiners aren't ta- toxic. And this is what I have to say about it. And, you know, nine months or 10 months or whatever it is later, this is the thing that came out, you know? So it speaks to kind of also maybe the, 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 the muse a little bit where you don't, if you're really just trying to be open to the insights that flow through you, then maybe you don't have that much control over what really comes out. Um, 
But in any case, like you, you have these ideas, whether you're out for a run or you're sitting down taking notes and you note take and you note take and you note take and you read books and you note take. And then um, you try to actually put it into your own words and it's such a mess and you feel like a dumbass and uh, it's just imposter syndrome. Yeah, a little bit, you know, a little bit for sure. And, uh, and then slowly over time, it starts to take shape. And, you know, you read it so many times that you think you're going crazy. And, and, you know, you also read it. And sometimes you, this happened like, you know, two days before I published it, I read it and I was like, this doesn't make any goddamn sense. You know, like I, I, cause I couldn't, I don't know, like you, you, you just read it too many times that you, yeah. uh, it, it, it warps your your mind and you can't read it clearly and of course you go to bed or you leave it alone for a day or two and you come back to it you're like oh no this this makes more sense than i gave myself credit for two nights ago but in any case man the, the punchline is is i think part of my the reason why it was so difficult was because i didn't set out to write this piece that it just formed and so i didn't really have any direction in my mind as i was writing it i think i learned a lot and so what the next time i set about writing something formal I think I'll have a, a better approach to hopefully avoid some of the meandering or aimless wandering of the writing. <clears throat> um, and I, you know, some people maybe they don't have a, as big an issue with, with writing, but I've talked to a bunch of writers, you know, like Gigi and Rob and stuff throughout the process. And, you know, I, I, it's great to hear them say how difficult they find the process too, because it makes me feel less like, you know, incapable or like an idiot or something. So, but it's, and, I don't know. And the other, the last thing I'll say is like, once you finish it, you're like, I have so much more to add to this, but if you don't like put the period and press publish, it'll just be going on for years. Right. Cause mm -hmm. you're always having new ideas and insights. So I decided just to let it go. And, you know, uh, maybe I'll be adding to it like piecemeal over the course of the next year or so. Yeah. I know exactly how you feel, mate. Um, lots of empathy. Uh, you know, when I was writing uh, my book, uh, that thing was done, I thought, and it's like, okay, what do I need to do now? Find an editor. And then like the first edit comes back and it's just full of cross throughs and red lines here and there. And like, you know, just, yeah, just, uh, ah, uh, I was thinking that's when imposter syndrome really starts kicking in. Like, you know, who am I kidding? Like, what, what, who am just, I to write? Yeah. Who am stuff? I to write? Yeah. Who am I to try and, you know, espouse about you know, quitting your job and taking your kids out of school and, you know, going to travel and like, this isn't going to resonate with anyone. Uh, I'm mm. going to get so much, I'm going to be slapped down for doing this. I'm going to be seen as like a, a white privileged man and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. I know, I know what, what keeps you going, what keeps you getting there, uh, whatever it is. I, I, maybe it's the sunk cost of written all that fucking shit down in the first place. That, <laughs> you know, you, you've got to ship something. Uh, I don't know. Did... You know, I, I think part of it, because <clears throat> you're totally right. It's like, why am I sp spending so much time and effort to do this? So when much time. Maybe somebody else is more, it's more, you know, maybe somebody else should be doing it. Why, you know, why am I assuming that anything I have to say is, is, is special, or unique in, in whatever way? And I think, you know, on the one hand, you have to say like, well, ultimately, the primary reason you should do most of this stuff, in my opinion, is for yourself. Like I... I write that for myself, not just to clarify my own thoughts, but like the kind of alchemical notion that I referenced in the latter part of the piece, whereby like when, <clears throat> when you engage in a piece of work, 
whether it's the refinement of metals or a piece of writing, you're actually transforming yourself in the process because you're having to become the person that's able to steal their emotions, quiet their mind, <clears throat> um, delve into their unconscious to tease out insights and ideas. Like that's, that's new territory for you. And you have to become the person that's able to do that in order to complete the work, in order to finish the piece of writing. So I did like think of it in that way and that like I'm transforming in this process. And that's part of the reason why it's so uncomfortable because like it's new for me and I'm having to become something new as a result. Um, so, you know, and I, I mentioned it right at the beginning about Peterson too. Like why spend 20 fucking years mm -hmm. to write a book mm -hmm. that nobody read? How can you, how can you rationalize that? And what I said in the piece was like, well, obviously he thought that he had, first of all, he wanted to articulate something that was on his mind. And perhaps he also believed that he had uncovered or refined a profound truth. And I think that speaks to the value of truth, which I explore in the piece as well, that you would commit yourself so much to articulating it. And that, you know, there's, there's different kinds of truth, right? And the one that he was dancing around in Maps of Meaning is like perhaps the grandest or greatest truth that we are able to uh, conceptualize. And he gave up 20 years of his life, and I'm sure a lot of time and frustration and all the rest of it to put it down. And, you know, also throughout writing the thing, I kind of reflected on that, like, well, if he can do it for 20 years, surely I can do it for a few months, you know? Um, but to, to your point about the book, I was contemplating that as well, like, just being like, well, fuck it, it's 40 pages now, I might as well put it, you know, into a, I might as well expand it and put it into a book. But I thought, uh, I want, you know, articles obviously disseminate more easily and more quickly, and they're free, and everyone can get them. And my primary goal is to refine these ideas. I mean, I don't care about, you know, accolades or anything like that. So the best way to get feedback on ideas is to make it more easily dis dis uh, distributable. And I thought an article is the best for that. But, you know, I do think it would be cool after this percolates a bit and I think about it more and, and get feedback and hear people's perspectives uh, and to expand on each of the segments and ideas in that article because it, it, it it covers a lot of ground fairly quickly, which is why I think it seems somewhat dense. Each one of those sections could easily be a chapter, if not a, a book in its own right, you know? So I feel like that's, that probably is on the horizon at some point in the future, but I wanted to get the ideas, you know, out there and, and mixing it up with, with other people as soon as possible. Yeah. You're talking yourself into writing a book here, John. There's, there's no yeah, way. I'm, I'm already kind of coming to grips with it, but we'll, we'll see. <laughs> Maybe that's what, the next year holds well I, i've pulled a few pieces out uh and i tweeted them so uh, and i've pulled a few others out so you've probably seen the ones that i already tweeted i think you've retweeted them yourself uh mm. the, the this one quote from peterson which we can dive into and uh you reference in uh in the writing here uh and to quote peterson the record of human cruelty and folly is too hideous for anything but the sense of a corrupted will to come near a diagnosis and then you go on and close the loop perfectly with with Bitcoin and what's going on right now with, with money. Uh, and you say, this is what fiat money ultimately does. It corrupts and often breaks the will of the individual as they either succumb to perverse incentives or increasingly lack the proper information and feedback to pursue actions maximally congruent with their environment, whether it be social or natural. 
it's so damn when you when you look at it that way it's so damn obvious right you know the the, the classic meme in the space you know, fix the money fix the world the money is broken mm. uh, and i think uh i even like I, I tagged peterson in this hopefully um i'm not sure if he ever saw it but i think he he's that close right he's that close and you guys <laughs> you guys you guys did a great job with Gigi and uh and breed love and uh and richard as well when you when you were on his show and then safe went in and, and just kept that wheel of that flywheel moving in his mind yeah so but here we are this is what fiat money ultimately does i think i on the peterson front i think you know he's obviously been going down the rabbit hole um and rather quickly all things considered so i think that will continue and i you know obviously i hope he reads the piece because um well first of all i don't maps of meaning never really became a super popular book it's starting to become now because peterson's so big but uh, i think i'd like to hear his feedback on uh my interpretation of some of the aspects of the book there and how i uh, use his insights and then of course you know, how it relates to Bitcoin, which I think he's becoming increasingly interested in, and then how the two tie together at the end, where I make the claim that Bitcoin is the very, is the current and most refined instantiation of the idea of the regenerative hero, which he so painstakingly explores in Maps of Meaning, which is, you know, effectively is the biggest claim you can make, because, you know, I'm, I'm basically saying that Bitcoin is akin to the second coming of, of Christ, that kind of idea, which is bananas. You know, it's, it's, I'm not sure if there's a, it's possible to make a, a larger claim than that. And so at the very least, I feel like he would find it uh, bold or interesting. And so hopefully he checks it out. But no, I, I think, um, I think a lot, it, it, for me, it's interesting. I do think Peter had, Peterson has a type of dissonance where, He's explored these uh, concepts for so long and in such great detail, but maybe he doesn't see their representation in the current world as much as, let's say, for lack of a better term, the Bitcoiners do. And I and as he comes, as he falls further down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and understands the influence of money on all these structures of society, I think he's starting to make that connection. It's becoming more clear to him, but I think he's still kind of in the a bit in the fiat mindset, like I've, I've seen him cheering on like the infrastructure plans that the, the you know, the bipartisan US infrastructure deal two three trillion or whatever it was and like thinking like, oh, this is great cooperation guys and this is a really good thing. And I'm just like, uh, you know, that's that's not how capitalism is, is most efficiently or effectively allocated. But again, I think the money rabbit hole is relatively new for him. And, and he's so brilliant that I can't wait for him to really get it because I, I think he'll, he'll add a lot of value to our thinking about certain things once he crosses the, the event horizon, as it were. Yeah. Come on, Jordan. Get on board. We need you on side. <laughs> I mean, we've got Jack now at the moment. So he seems to be firing on all cylinders. Oh, man, that's been awesome. <laughs> Unbelievable, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, and... Um, and with that will come a lot more firepower, I'm sure. But uh, there's there's another there's another line here that um, that you you write, and uh, even in the most democratic and free societies, false money permits, even necessitates, 
ever greater centralized control. There's no escape. Yeah. There's no, no escape in, uh, under that yeah. system. And this is where we're trapped. There was no escape. There is now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this has also been echoed by a lot of Bitcoiners in, in, in kind of framing central bank, banking as a, a Marxist institution, right? Like if you have a central bank at the, at the center of any sort of political system, then it's a command and control system, no matter what you want to call it. And the more time a command and control system has to operate, the more command and control it has to become because their way of operating is ultimately destructive to capital. And as that, as, as capital destruction continues and the, out, the allocation of the misallocation of resources uh, persists and people have less and less and they, they demand and require more and more, and they look to the central power to provide it. And the central power is only too willing to continue to misallocate resources in a feeble attempt, even if sometimes it's genuine to meet those demands and, and needs that are being asked of them. You just get a downward spiral, spiral into uh, less and less prosperity, larger and larger divide, you know, wealth divide between a, a small portion at the top and a larger at the bottom. Everything becomes politicized because the money is political money. It's discretion. It's completely discretionary. Um, and what happens with as as the central power attempts to impose solutions again, even if they're well intended, uh, which is I guess perhaps rare the case that they're exclusively well intended because there's so much corruption in, in these sorts of systems. But even if they are, in an attempt to have their solutions be applicable to the most people possible that becomes the control aspects. Like, well, if we can, if we can um, standardize the individual, the quote unquote individuals who were attempting to help quote unquote with our, uh, with our policies, then that would make it easier to make them less data that we would need to make them effective. And this is why you see everyone being treated in a collective rather than individual, because we just assume that the collective has certain characteristics everyone likes this, will do this, will acquiesce to that, has certain preferences, the more we can um, standardize all those things, then at least conceptually, the easier it is to satisfy them, right? So command and control economies are not conducive to individual uh, preferences and diversity of preferences. They, they would prefer for ease of operation, for less data required to make decisions, for everyone to be exactly the same. And that's why inevitably you see uh, the collective characterized that way in command and control economies because it's the incentive that that structure creates. And what tool do they use to drive this, this collectivism, this idea of keeping everybody standard and everybody the same, and everybody marching in, the, uh, in unison? The TV box. Well, it's even more insidious than that. The, the TV the box, the money. State education. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, that's the thing. Like it, it, all narratives increasingly speak to a more uniform or standardized individual. Right. And so whether it's the education, whether it's the media, whether it's the healthcare system, whether it's the political apparatus, because of the very foundational notion that it's command and control rather than emergent order, it will the incentive is to increasingly treat it as and try to form it into 
something uniform because it makes the operation of it more easy. And this just robs the individual of their, their uniqueness and, and, the, and the culture of its diversity. And you get these, you know, you get the image that everyone has in their minds when they think about tyrannical authoritarian regimes, which is gray, dull, everyone wearing the same thing, everyone eating the same food. And you think, well, it could never happen here. It could never happen here. And yet you have the same structure. It's just you're, you're at a different place on the timeline. So, you know, politically, monetarily and, and socially speaking. So that's where we're headed. I, I don't I don't Man, see drive an past alternative. A, drive past a school in some parts of Europe, right? You, you've got 14 year old kids all dressed the same, looking <clears> the same, all wearing a mask or wearing all, all using the same brand of bag because God forbid you look any kind of, you know, they, they fear being individual. It's absolute yeah. fear. Can't wear the wrong trainers. Can't have the wrong bag. Can't wear the wrong style of jeans, even if they do have the choice to wear, you know, something other than a, a uniform. Uh, you know, the uniform is a white pair of Nike trainers, blue pair of Levi's, and a puffer jacket right now with a mask on. Yeah. yeah. This is, uh, and it can, <laughs> it can be invoked. It can be invoked as as like a really positive thing. Like for example, this is what I was saying. Like when when problems emerge as a result of the misallocation of capital, they only foster more more demands for more support so for example like food stamps in in a lot of countries but let's say the u.s are mm -hmm. massive right a lot of like tens of millions of people rely on food stamps well that food is pretty uniform right like if you're using food stamps you're probably you know or if you're going to, to places where things are being given out by the government they're fairly uniform because that's the most efficient way to do it you know, and you can easily foresee a circumstance or look back on history and see circumstances where if like, oh, if the people are so poor that they actually can't afford clothing, well, let's let's do the the uh, charitable thing and provide them with clothing. Well, we're not going to give them all different clothing. We'll give them a uniform pair of shoes, we'll give them a uniform pair of pants and shirts. And like this is how things devolve into this flat, standardized, no diversity, no uniqueness sort of society. And if you decide that you want to uh, diverge from that, then you're ostracized or you're jailed or you're, you're penalized in some way. And this is the, this is the, the steady fall into authoritarianism. And again, with, with, a, with a central bank fiat money system at the core of all this, I don't see how it's, a, an, it's not inevitable. Continually robbing from you. This is the thing as well. Like, yeah. you know, just yeah. like every single day you're being stolen from every time they print money into the system inflate the monetary base uh, they steal just a little bit more of your time and energy and it's just so it's so wrong um well but it, it, and again i say at the beginning of the piece that it's the the greatest injustice facing humanity today because it's mm -hmm. it's it's on the largest scale and you know what i find funny man is of course we've both had conversations with loved ones and friends about this you know until we're blue in the face um and people know, like, if you, you, you could share instances where the U.S. government has done false flags in the past, like, you know, uh, Gulf of Tonkin, for example, you could share that or what they did with, uh, uh, I think it was Mossadegh in Iran, or you look at the history of Central and South America and their influence there. Uh, or you could show them uh, the times when they've been, or you could take pharmaceutical companies and you could show them times when they've been convicted of fraud and made these massive payouts and that kind of stuff. Or you could show them how the banking system works and you could, you could uh, lay it out in no uncertain terms. And what you would think was that these would be breaches of trust. And like, for example, if you went to your butcher 
today and you paid him 50 bucks for a few nice cuts of meat. And then you got home and you realized it was actually uh, rubber that he had painted red. And you go back to him and you say, hey, like, what the hell is this? And he was like, oh, I didn't know that it was rubber. I'm, I'm sorry. You know, and like your trust would be broken, right? You, you probably wouldn't go back to him. Like if we, if we encounter instances of broken trust in our daily life, like we almost immediately drop those people or businesses or whatever from our life. Cause like, how, how can I trust you again after you've broken my trust? But when it's the largest institutions in society with the most power that we rely on the most, i.e. government, media, uh, you know, medicine, pharmaceutical, money, banking, they can break our trust a million times a year and we'll keep going back for more. You know, so more fool us. And, and more fool the, 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 the people that don't wake up to that and continue um, being lambs to the slaughter because they're, 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 they're just ignoring the instances or not responding to the instances of, of breach of trust so often and continuing to trust regardless. It's really weird because as I said, you, you wouldn't do it on a small scale, but on a big scale, people do it all the time. No problem. Yeah. It's um, it's yeah. There's, like you said before, Stockholm syndrome is all um, wrapped up in this somewhere and <clears throat> trying to put your finger on it is so difficult. Again, because it's invisible, right? It's, uh, mm. it's, it's crazy. But, you know, just to like, bring this back to um, the idea of, uh, you know, the church and the state uh, and religion and how you're trying to, you know, piece all of these things together. If you think back, in history, and I can't pin a date on this, probably it happened over centuries, who knows, that the slow uh, dissolution, I guess, of the of the church, the, the slow move from the church being the all knowing and all governing kind of um, central power to what we have now, like the, the nation states, uh, that, that must have been a weird time. You know, like, how, how, how do you think that there must have been like the, this core bunch of guys like screaming like no we cannot change this we have the order we've got you know we've we've taken centuries to build this we've got our beliefs obviously there's four different forks in different directions thousands of different religions whatever all doing their own thing but then like the pervasive state how did that happen do you think like you know what was the big sales job to to take so many people and how long did it take and is it going to be quicker this time now we're trying to wrestle because if it's been wrestled off the church once and it's now the state mm. can we then i mean natural natural order would uh you'd assume at some point that has to break down and a new order would emerge um do we go forward or do we go back or do we pick the best from each thing and then build something else like mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a good and complex question. I, I think, you know, I'm by no means a religious historian or anything like that. And, um, and it's interesting to think that, especially in the case of Christianity, you know, it was like three, 400 years before it became the state religion, right? That's a long ass time for something to be kind of like, not under, it wasn't underground for all that time, but that's how it certainly started. And it was very niche for lack of a better term and then it became more popular and 
all that jazz. And then, you know, maybe you could make the case that when the state adopted it, adopted it, that's when it was became neutered, you know, because, you know, our, I see relate, you know, our relation to the divine or our, our relation to the framework that we adopt in order to best engage reality. Like there's nothing more sacred or important than that. And for the state to, of course, the state is going to want to have some of that juice, right? They're going to want some of that power. They're going to want to have influence over that framework because then they can more easily control you. And again, there's an element of, well, maybe there's an element of altruism in that because they say like, well, that's tricky, right? Because they're like, we, we're here to help. We're from the government. We're here to right. help, you know? But perhaps, perhaps that's when it all went to hell in a handbasket. And I think, you know, in instances, like I referred to the founding of, of the US and the principles that were instantiated in the founding documents there, like it's, on a, it's not contentious to say that religious principles were drawn on to build into law. And I think that's the purpose of laws is to further enforce certain uh, principles that were derived from religious thought and inquiry. But again, you, you know, you, you do necessarily, um, you're implying that some degree of agency from the individual is taken away. You're just, what you're implying is that the agency we're taking away from you is, is good, quote unquote, good. Like you can't just rock up and kill anybody you want. Of course, we're taking that away, that freedom away from you. But we would say that's good, not just on a social cohesion level, but actually on a structure of reality eternal level like one human being taking the life of another is not good because life is sacred and divine sort of idea and uh you know so law borrows heavily from the insights and wisdom that uh religious traditions uncovered and as to why that dynamic has changed you know human beings are so imperfect and corruptible and we're trying to deal with ideas that are eternally true, perhaps, maybe, right? And, you know, so there's a big gulf between the, the apprehension of something that might be eternally good, truthful, loving, whatever word you want to use for, for God, maybe, and how we choose to act in every moment and the different emotions and incentives that play upon us. When these things become institutionalized, right, and they, be, they may become institutionalized for for good reason, because you might say, well, hey, look, certain among us have uncovered what we think are foundational or optimal principles by which to engage reality. And they're hard fought, they're not easy to uncover. How can we, wanting to be altruistic, wanting to help our fellow men, how can we help bring them along a certain path such that they may uncover them their, themselves for, because of the benefit that would be conferred upon them in doing so? And I think, you know, it's rational to think, okay, well, what sort, what sort of things can we teach? What sort of things can we say? What kind, of, what kind of ideas can we propagate in order to help instill this, in, in, to promote this discovery process within people? But what starts as that little seed, which seems totally innocuous and reasonable, becomes massive institutions uh, of control, effectively, that, that, are, that gatekeep rather than provide access to, you know, the, the greatest and grandest and most helpful truths, let's say. And so religious institutions, just like government institutions, I think by and large are tremendously corrupt. They've, they've, very, they've lost their way. And so 
I think that's part of the reason why, uh, you know, people went away from them, let's say. I think another part is that as we uncover the material world, there's, I don't think there's less unknown because the, there is no limit to the unknown, right? But it, maybe it, it seems that we're more and more capable at, at un uncovering the unknown and the extent to which these religious stories, uh, people perceive them as being a, a placeholder for ignorance about the natural or material world, maybe they, they're relatively, there's a relative diminution in their importance as a result of that. Now, I don't really think that's what their uh, purpose is, but I do know that they've been used in that capacity throughout, throughout history. And then finally, as, as our landscape, as our world expands, right? Both our knowledge of the earth we live on and the, the universe that we live in, as well as these digital worlds that we're now erecting where we can talk like this whenever we want. And we, you know, our perception goes through someone's Instagram account into their world and we see all the different things they've done. I mean, it's a dramatic expansion of, of consciousness, these digital worlds that we're building. And so as that landscape grows, our landscape of meaning necessarily grows along with it because we can't really perceive without meaning. So if, if our perception is basically exploding, we're able to perceive so much more than we ever have, our landscape of meaning does the same. And I think it may be the case that, I have to be careful here because I think it, it can seem as though the, the religious wisdom was articulated using only the landscape of meaning available to them at the time. And now that we're in a dramatically expanded landscape of meaning, perhaps it seems like, perhaps there's less salience in, in the words and the stories and the ways in which those traditions have been articulated. However, I do think what they are addressing are, is so fundamental that I don't actually think that we've, uh, move past the validity of the wisdom they contain, but we may have, but we may need to update the ways in which we relate to the wisdom because the language and the ideas and the, the salience of, of the words and the meaning used in those traditions has changed as a result of our, how our environment and our, our conscious environment has changed. And, um, so to, to come up to what you were saying is like, how, how does this change and how quickly does it change? I think it can change quickly just because it does seem like the more we push into the future, things accelerate. Like our, our landscape of meaning is accelerating. I think the evolution of our consciousness is accelerating simply because the feedback is faster. You know, you give like you take an AI system, right? From the nineties and their feedback was, so slow that like, you know, maybe they could play a hundred games with themselves over the course of a, an hour. But now the feedback of an AI system, like a chess system, or whatever, is so fast that they can play a billion games with them in the course of an hour. And that means they're able to learn and, and adapt more quickly. And so I think something like that is going on with us today. And so I, I do think change can happen fairly fast, but I think we we're currently in the situation where we're at, we may be at like the height of this uber rationality, uber materialistic, uber subjective relativistic sort of uh, mindset in the world. And we're most, like I said, with the, the comment about the, the guy in the sky, like most people think this sophisticated 
enlightened, logical, rational position is to say, boy, isn't religion stupid and silly and juvenile. And I think that is, a, I mean, of, of course, I think it's an arrogant and hubristic position to take, but I also just think it's lazy. Um, and so I, I think if we're going to have, if we're going to move forward in the best possible way as a, as a civil, as a species or civilization on earth, we do have to take seriously the endeavor of determining the best framework to engage ourselves, each other, and the world. And a lot of people have spent a lot of time on that over the last 10,000 years, and we shouldn't so easily dismiss the insights that they've discovered because there are no, there is no more important enterprise, which is why it's always been the primary foundational enterprise of every civilization since the dawn of recorded time. Right. And so for us just to think that we don't need it anymore is super dangerous. And again, this is what Nietzsche was referring to. And I do, you know, to put a cap on all this and what I say at the end of my piece is like, I, I actually do think that Bitcoin plays a very prominent role here because I think it instantiates the, the, the fundamental principles that have been uncovered and refined throughout this religious enterprise over the course of, of human civilization are actually built into this system in a manner in which may not be corruptible or viable. And if that's the case, then I think it becomes not just like an archetypal representation of these ideas and insights, a la these stories of these religious stories that have been propagated in the past to, to basically say, hey, these are, the, these are the best principles by which to construct a framework to live your life. So you should, you should do that. You know, it's, it's not just using those principles to suggest a mode of being, but it's actually handing you a system that instantiates in an inviolable manner those principles that you can actually engage in and use. It, it basically enforces those principles out into the world rather than simply in the realm of um, subjective idea or behavior. And if that's, if that's the case, I think, I mean, it's hard to articulate how impactful that would be. Uh, and this is why I speculate at the end, you know, people always kind of joke like Bitcoin is religion and some people deride it and say Bitcoin is a cult. And, I, you know, I, I speculate like, well, what, it, what will the role of Bitcoin be in, in that primary framework by which we engage reality? Because it's also the case that as a result of engaging with those principles and how successfully they've been instantiated in the world, people are changing dramatically and they're changing in a manner that resonates seemingly increasingly more with those very principles. So for example, if Bitcoin is a, something that propagates incorruptible truth, well, why does it seem to be the case that Bitcoin both attracts and you know, transforms people to be more honest and truthful and act with more integrity in their life? And like, I've heard this and you've heard this from, from I'm sure tons of people, like you go down the round and, yeah, and experienced it. And so what's going on there? Why, what, why are people being transformed by exposure and engagement with this thing? And so, you know, those are questions of the utmost significance, which um, is why I tried to explore them in the piece. And, and again, at the end, why I, I speculate that Bitcoin will play a prominent role, not just in our economic and monetary future, 
but in that foundational uh, and central pursuit of human civilization to determine the proper principles by which to orient themselves and engage reality and each other. And, you know, I'm still letting that one sink in because it's <laughs> fairly... Uh, I know you seem heavy. pretty deep down the rabbit hole on it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if I if I if I plot our our journey down the rabbit hole together for the last eighteen months, I think I saw you take a, a left turn down this rabbit hole about I don't know nine twelve months ago, and I've not seen you come back out too often. I'm like, yeah, I'll see you down there, John. I'll be I'll be down one day with you. Don't you? <laughs> <clears throat> well mate it looks pretty freaky down there (laughs) it's um as i say at the end you know obviously i could be 100 percent wrong right i could be suffering from my own delusion blind spots wanting things to be true all that and i i recognize that but you know one of the guiding uh objectives throughout most of my life has been to see with as much clarity as i can and part of that has been consuming information so I can construct, you know, the best perspective possible, but then also trying to remove my own bullshit, for lack of a better term, from my perception. You know, we can't obviously, and this is why the psychedelic pursuits have been fascinating, because I think they give you a window into undifferentiated awareness, let's say. So like this idea of ego death that so many people talk about with psychedelics is basically the stripping away of all the different personality identifiers that you have and those go away and it's very painful because that's basically who you think you are prior to these experiences Mm -hmm. and then if you stay with it and you spend time with it and you're serious in the practice you are able to seemingly inhabit a consciousness that is untethered or or at least as as minimally tethered as possible to all those personality identifiers and associations that you make with yourself to have an idea of yourself to self conceptualize yourself. And when you remove all that, and you you have the sense of pure awareness, well, then you also have a sense of connection with everything. Because if there's no hard lines of demarcation between who you are and, and who Daniel is and who the rock over on the beach is, right, if it all is just it just is just isness, right, if it all just is, <laughs> um, I know, I'm going deep here, but but then uh, yeah, you, you get a, you get a, a timeless sort of sense. And, and also you get a sense that you're seeing clearly without your own biases. And so I, that's, that's the great, my that's the great to... reset right there. That's the personal great reset. <laughs> right. You're talking right. About. Like, but, you know, shed all of sure. that emotional baggage and everyone you've, you know, had to be in your previous lives and careers and whatever else. And these figurative masks that we've had to wear uh, to just right. to get by in life, you know? Yeah, it's... exactly. And that's been, that's been my attempt. And so I, I share all that just to say that, uh, you know, like I don't know why these themes keep emerging in my mind because I, I'm cognizant of the fact that it, like I could want it to be too much, right? And so I try to remove mm-hmm. that element. And even so they continue to emerge and which is why, the primary motivation for for putting the piece out, as I said to you before, and putting it out as kind of an imperfect, incomplete thing, is just to get some conversation happening about this stuff and get other people's insights and perspectives to try to see if there's there's any quote unquote truth to this. And you know, I kind of already know a little bit that there is because over the last twelve months, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of Bitcoiners, mm-hmm. both on and off the pod, 
And a lot of people are coming to similar sort of perspectives. And maybe we're all just nuts, but maybe we're all dancing around something that's actually quite significant here. It's uh, here's one for you. Like uh, we, we were talking just just recently about you know the 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 move from church to state and this kind of uh, dangerous position that we find ourselves in now, where it seems to me, and this is only just clicking, you know, talking to you about it right now that we seem to be in a place where so many people, the masses, let's call them, you can call them normies if you like, whatever, but so many people under the current regime, under the current way that society is set, their God is whoever is in power of the state at that point. Their God is, you know, Biden, or their God is Boris Johnson, and they're gonna do whatever that guy says, and they're gonna follow whatever that guy says. Or if you go one layer lower, their um, their God is the leader of the opposition party at whatever you know whatever political party that you follow. That seems to be where we're at, uh, and I'd never really thought about that too much. But like this is why these people can get away with absolute total bloody murder at the end of the day. Like that these are murderous. Let's call them what they are. Let's call them out. These are murderous murderous institutions murderous like you know they've all gone to war all pretty much i mean some will say no trump didn't okay but that was hardly a uh a smooth ride that four years was it? <laughs> yeah yeah i mean this is the point that's been made you know fairly often in the last several decades where like if you if if you do away with God, quote unquote God, there's it, it leaves a vacuum, right? What do you fill the God-shaped hole in your heart with? Like it, it, it seems like, and and most people would say, like, well, if the institution of religion and, and God has been removed, then the state is what's taken its place. And the thing the thing is, is like maybe that's um characteristic of because we I, I think as I say in the piece, like God is the principle or perhaps the power. And I think that's the case with, with state, with the state assuming that role, uh, that you, that sits atop your hierarchy. And you could also say it another way that is the thing you're most, you're most committed or willing to submit to. And I, and I'll clarify that a little bit. So in the case of power, it's obvious, right? Like, well, God is the thing that makes me submit the most, that has mo most power over making me submit. But I think you, the, the, the healthy way or the, the, the better way of having a relationship to submission is let's say that you're high, you have a principle. Your highest principle is not to, or is to tell the truth, right? Uh, and you find yourself in a situation where someone says, well, I'm going to kill you uh, unless you lie about this right here. Or if I'm, I'm going to kill you if you do tell the truth. And the kind of the idea of the martyr is the one who says, who I am are, is the principles that I decide to adhere to no matter what. And so in that way, I'm submitting myself to the consequences of adhering to those principles. So in that way, I'm submitting myself to those principles. And so the martyr would say, kill me, 
because me living in accord with my principles is far more important than me hanging on to life for another year, 10 years, 50 years, whatever. And so in that way, I think it's the thing that's at the principle or value that sits at the top of our hierarchy is definitionally the thing that we submit ourselves to, right? And I think maybe in large part today, it's become either the power of the state. And again, that's an unhealthy, that's a, let's say that's a um, involuntary submission. Say I'm submitting to that power because I, I have no way of transcending it. I have no way of You're born into superseding it, it. Yeah, and I can't do anything about it. And then, or the other way is I'm submitting to a principle to guide my behavior. And that's gonna determine the value and subordinate all the other actions that I take. They're gonna be in service of, they're gonna be in submission to this principle. Maybe it's telling the truth, being honest, um, seeking freedom and liberation for myself and others, whatever it may be. The highest principle or value is what orients your behavior. And I think by virtue of that, it is a kind of submission. So it really comes down to voluntary or involuntary submission. If you find yourself in a, in a society that allows you to choose what principles you submit to to determine how you order, orient your behavior and your perspective, then that's probably a good thing. If you find yourself in a society where you involuntarily submit to a power because it's such a, it has so much control over you, and that's probably not a good situation. And, and unfortunately, we find ourselves in the latter today. Right there. Yeah. Right there. People are, you know, uh, if I want to walk into a supermarket, I have to put on a mask. Otherwise, I can't go buy food. At what point does that become like Austria, where I've got to show, you know, proof that I've had some kind of medical procedure? Mm. This is, At what point does it become too risky for you to even be still alive? Right? That, and the, uh, yeah, that's the, the story of the martyr. Mm. Well, I mean... And that's why you hear, I will die on this hill, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if it's a choice you're, you're willing to make, you know, of course, if you're just rounded up and put in the train and, and gotten rid of, then... That's martyr is probably not the right term because you may choose to, mm -hmm. to to take a different course in that case. But yeah, I mean, it's it's dark times that we're contending with. And perhaps that's the reason. I mean, this is the other thing that I, you know, briefly allude to in the piece. But if the times so young and, and Neumann and, and those sort of people talk about the collective unconscious, right? And People think it's like, you know, maybe a, a hive mind or something, but really it's just what ideas and insights and meaning is human conscious capable of accessing, consciousness capable of accessing. Um, and of course, there's an interplay between that and the environment, which is why we'll always have an eternal wellspring of innovation and ideas, because as the environment changes, so too does the feedback our unconscious gets, and that we're, therefore we're more capable of pulling out ideas that are relevant to the emerging landscape or environment. But, um, you know, they, they talk about that landscape of potential and how it informs like so much of what we think and, and what we do. And if, what's the best way of putting this? It, 
Let's come, let's come back to that one. I, I need to think about that before I let it rip. Yeah. But um, <laughs> anytime, man, we'll do another show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll move on from that one. Maybe I'll come back to it in a few minutes. All right. But no, it, 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 is, it, is, it is dark times. And um, oh, I, this, this is a better way to put it. Mm-hmm. So because of that, it's, it's very much the landscape of the times that squeeze out you know, certain insights and ideas, right? Necessity of the, is the mother of all invention. And because of how dark the times are, we get this individual, i.e. Satoshi, who said, we really need something different if we're going to make it, right? So implicit in what he built are certain principles. And again, I touch on that very briefly at the, at the end of the piece. And it is that the individual should be in control of their life force, of their time and energy, i.e. their money. And that the sovereignty of the individual is the right perspective to have for ordering a society and engaging with one another. And those principles were built into his system, which is why it has the characteristics which it has. And so I think that's an example of how the pressure of, let's say, the darkness of the current situation emerges up a solution. And I I think similarly, the pressure of this situation and how how far astray we've walked or been led is going to elicit a, a greater pressure on, on these very concepts that we're talking about to try to, to, to recognize that we need a better framework for handling what's going on, right? So if, if, we, if we accept that determining the best possible framework to engage reality is a worthwhile pursuit, and I think it's like tautological or whatever that it kind of, it's implicit in, in, in that definition that yes it is worthwhile then we need to figure it out and all this pressure in our surrounding world i think is just going to put more pressure on that and say okay well look i'm willing to reserve my previous beliefs and notions and positions on on religion and philosophy and stoicism politics and everything because we need to find we need to figure out a better a better way if we're going to make it out of this and you know maybe that's why we're all being corralled into having ideas like the ones I've expressed in the piece in saying like, this needs to be revisited. You know, Bitcoin has this propensity to make you revisit almost everything, because if you change that one thing, which is the money, which is your relation to your time and energy, which is your relation to the time of other people, which is your relation to your own future, you change that thing. And a lot of other things change, a lot of other things change, as well as you become, because uh, you've been so kind of enlightened to the, the true nature of money, you start to look at everything else and be like, what was I missing? What, what are my blind spots in my assumptions and understandings of all those things, be it politics or science or philosophy or whatever. And religion is one of them, I think. And this is why so many of us are landing on it. And I think that's good. And I think that's for a reason. And I, so I think we... It's clear something, it's clear to me that we need something like that. I think there's an impulse amongst a lot of Bitcoiners. I've been starting to notice that like there's a resurgence of like Christianity. And I know I focus on it a lot in my piece, but I don't think it's necessarily the best approach to just say, I'm feeling a renewed religious impulse and I'm starting to see the validity of religion. Okay, I'm just going to grab Christianity and now that's my religion. 
what I, you know, the, obviously that's more immediately gratifying, but I don't think that's the, the best approach. I think the best approach is to say, there's a lot more here than I used to think is here, uh, but a lot of the criticisms are still valid. Let's work with these ideas. Um, let's try to understand where they come, where they came from and why as much as possible. Let's try to understand how, what Bitcoin represents relates to these ideas and the function of these ideas. And let's together have these conversations, put out these, you know, pieces of writing and all that kind of stuff. And let's not necessarily have an objective on the horizon, right? I think this is going to have to be, even though it may be slower, it's going to have to be an emergent process of, of something new coming up rather than uh, us being able to just say, let's bring this back or let's, let's adopt this. And I, and that's tough because we want solutions now, but I think if we, if we want the best solution and if we realize how important it is, which is probably nothing more important, then we need to take our time and, and let the truth emerge through us rather than identifying it, let's say, immediately. It's a point I was going to bring up with you, actually, because we, we do have to... It, I don't know why Christianity keeps coming up. There's tons of other religions. And a lot of them, if not all of them, I would say all of them, of course, are based on very sensible ideas you know like uh that's it, i guess you got to be careful to not focus on one and then start you know causing a rift or a division between others because obviously the, the bitcoiners that are here some of them and many of them are uh you know practicing different religions uh many are call it what you want agnostic or atheist uh you know haven't decided on any particular one or might practice a bit of Buddhism and in, in, in three times a week and meditate and the other two times a week practice a bit of, you know, a little different flavor of, of everything else. You're not one thing, right? Mm. So, yeah, That's I don't it. know. Man. I agree. I agree. And this is the, this is kind of the point. Like one, I think a lot of the wisdom contained in all of these many, mm -hmm. yeah, most of these traditions, at the base, very similar. You know, again, I'm not a religious historian, but like a, a lot of similar themes permeate these things. They're articulated and con contextualized in different ways uh, for the time and the place where they were constructed and stuff. And there, and there are definitely notable differences. But what I think we should be doing at this stage of, you know, human development and sociocultural position, this, you know, landscape we're in, is now that we have access to all these, because it's only recently that we have ease of access to all of these different religions and the details about them, is we should be familiarizing ourselves with them all and teasing out the principles that we think are most truthful, let's say, and, and allowing ourselves to explore them in that way without any, any particular allegiance to one or the other because that will nullify the pursuit right off the bat like if you just assume well i was born in egypt so i'm a muslim and mu mm -hmm. you know muslim is the truth uh, um that religion is the truth uh or islam is the truth or if you you know you grew up in texas and because of all those same factors christianity is the truth like you you limit your ability to really figure out 
what the truth of these matters are. And so maybe it's the case that something entirely new emerges. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's the case that something entirely new emerges with Bitcoin, like playing a, a very central role. And maybe not. But I think we, we have to approach the pursuit in that way. And one, one of the kind of just throwaway remarks I make in the piece is that it may be extremely consequential. The relative sophistication of these religious doctrines may be extremely consequential. And what I meant by that was that if we, if we assume that all value ultimately comes from meaning, or maybe not all, like there's, let's say there's biological imperatives that create value. If I'm starving and you have an apple, that value, that apple is very valuable to me. But it's clear we live in far more complex systems of value beyond just simply biological imperatives. And so for all of those things, it, meaning seems to be the source. The meaning you ascribe to something will determine where it falls on your value hierarchy and how it orients your behavior. And if we, it seems like the religious enterprise is determining the nexus or the wellspring of meaning. And if that system of articulating or exploring the ultimate wellspring, the ultimate source of meaning, if that is more sophisticated, then perhaps it means that more value is able to be uh, derived or constructed from that source. Right. If it's just like if I just give you one principle, like God is love, that's it forever. Maybe that doesn't generate as much meaning and value as it might if that simple principle or idea was explicated and explored and extracted and built into a, an elaborate system of of meaning or myth or story or what have you. So it might be the case that the relative sophistication of our understanding of these principles is highly consequential because it may almost be like a competitive advantage in with regards to the emergence of meaning and the ability to um, perceive, generate, and transfer value as a result of that enhanced access to meaning, let's say. And so that may be one of the reasons why Christianity um, is I think it's largely geographic, of course, and cultural, but, you know, it, it, it's possible that maybe some of the religions that are more sophisticated in terms of how kind of complex they are, maybe that's part of the cultural, sociocultural evolutionary process and that it selects for the more sophisticated and complex religions because they permit more value to emerge and be, be and permeate throughout the culture. And that, of course, is competitive on a you know, sticks and stones sort of uh, level as well, one culture vis-a-vis -vis another, right? If, you, if, you're, if one culture is more able to access, generate, and, and uh, transmit value, then that's a highly competitive advantage versus one who's less able to do so, right? Because you have more complexification and specialization in the economy, greater weapons, greater food production, all that kind of stuff. So maybe, right? Maybe. Uh, I don't know, but it's certainly a conversation that I'd like to keep having with people. Well, you know, the, the I'm sure anybody that follows the uh, the Muslim faith is probably listening to this, jumping up and down. Like, you know, what about Sharia law? Like, you know, come on. Like, this yeah, is yeah. this is you know, and for those that don't aren't fully aware, you know, 
Um, basically, I'm just reading here. A Muslim is not allowed to benefit from lending money or receiving money from someone. Uh, this means uh, that earning interest is not allowed, whether you are an individual or a bank. I mean, that ties in quite nicely with the ethos of Bitcoin. Ish. I mean, I could lend you some Bitcoin. I could tell you, you know, you got to pay me back 2%. Kind of the point, right? It's like, this is the other thing that get wrong. It's funny, you know, I've heard many of these like religion versus atheist debates and the atheists generally say like well the way we develop our morality is that we you know we evolve we intermingle as cultures we observe our behavior we see which behaviors are most conducive to um, social harmony and flourishing and prosperity and peace and then we adopt those as kind of like our moral framework and then as time moves forward and we have more experience to observe we adjust those that moral framework to make sure it's optimally um, to, to make sure it's optimized, right? And I'm like, guys, that's that's religious story. Like that's exactly what it is. And, but it, it, all it's all is it, it the R it, word? It, is it the R word that blocks of people? Of course it is. I, it, I for me, so. it is. I think, uh, and I don't know why. Um, and and you bring this up in the piece, well, right? You well, you, you did. Well, You're, you're, you're cutting up one second. Can, can you hear me, John? <laughs> you back? We're back. I, okay. I, I lost you. I lost you at the point where I said, is it the R word? Right. Okay. Let, let me get back into that. So it, yeah, you I were about to is, fly off. <laughs> <laughs> it is the R, R word, but it is the, the, the G word too, right? The God word. And I, so what I think is happening is the additional step that the religions make is like they both do the same thing right they observe behavior they tease out certain principles and and morals that they say these are the best ones to optimize individual and collective life by let's instantiate them in in some way code law what have you for the maximal benefit of all they both do that now they maybe they communicate them in different ways right religious narrative versus you know logical articulation and you could there's an interesting discussion there to determine which is more effective I think, and which is more resilient to change in meaning and time. And I think you could probably make a strong case that the former is because it speaks on a, a level of meaning and emotion rather than logic, reason, and the words used to convey them. So I think that that's why the religious stories and myths are more eternal and therefore more effective in that pursuit. But the additional step that religions make, as far as I can tell, is that they then say, well, okay, if those, if we observe that those principles and the behavior that stems from them are actually the most um, beneficial in terms of maximizing the balance between individual flourishing and liberation and collective collaboration and harmony, peace and prosperity, if that's actually the case, and it seems to be the case, what does that say about reality? What does that say about the structure of reality, right? What does that say about the forces that govern our consciousness and everything else that we experience in the world? And I think what the religions say is it, it means that that force prefer, you know, preferentially, or, uh, that force prefers those behaviors because those, be, those principles and ideals lead to optimized outcomes within this structure. And so you could say that there's something about that structure that preferentially selects for them and call that God. 
And so when you submit to those principles, you're submitting, the, the inference is that you're submitting to godly principles. And it's not just like a nice mental framework. I mean, they're inferring that something that we cannot understand about the experience that we're having, there are principles imbued to that for the very reason that when those principles are acted out, the greatest amount of success is experienced. Success, like individual and social success, social harmony and individual expression and liberation. So they're just inferring that you're basically aligning through your actions more closely with the some of the principles that govern our experience of reality. And that's why, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, your highest principle or value is what you're most willing to submit to, what you're most willing to have your, your action be subordinate to. And that's what religions do. They say we've discovered through our, now I should say that some religions, you know, obviously, take a different approach and they say all we know about behavior was granted via revelation and therefore we're going to do whatever Moses or Muhammad or Jesus or whatever said and I think there's a tremendous over literalization of of interpretation of of religious wisdom and insight in the world today and there probably always has been but my the the way in which it makes sense to me the most is that people always observe people We've always just acted and observed action. And as we tease out the ones that are most successful and the principles behind the actions that, that lead to the most successful outcomes, the, the next step beyond that is the inference that they must somehow resonate uh, better or more with certain principles imbued into the invisible, forever invisible and unknowable structure of reality. That's the faith part. That's where faith is invoked and in saying, if, 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 if they work out here in the realm of action, they must be communing in some way with the structure in which action is taking place. And that's an aspect of, of the faith part. So the, 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 the religious people and the rationalists, like the, the difference, I, or the atheists or what have you, the difference I see between the two is that the, the atheists just aren't willing to make the final step to ask, why is it that the morality you've been able to extract through this logic and reason and observational process, why are you not uh, asking the follow-on question is, why are those things the most successful principles or morals to be guided by? Why is that the case? Could be anything, right? Why is it those? So that's my current viewpoint on that stuff. All right, and then there's the, this part of the, the the text here where you uh, you bring up the the Latin prefix for for the word, right? You, you break it down, religion. Uh, you know the Latin prefix re for again and uh, ligare, uh, ligare, ligare maybe. Ligare, I don't know. And, yeah. and I should say it's somewhat contentious, but it, it's a fairly common etymology, right? Uh, which means to bind or connect by this definition to be religious means to reconnect. Um, mm. But to what? Like reconnect to what? Hard money, John? <laughs> <laughs> well, or the principles instantiated in a certain hard money? Or recon or and allow those principles to... I wonder what religions were emerging throughout history once gold was introduced to those societies. 
because this didn't happen the way it's happening in Bitcoin, right? We're, we're, we're all plugged in. Anybody in the world can plug into Bitcoin and move on to this, this, this next, well, it's an evolution. You know, I spoke to Svetsky about that. And I think um, you're probably on the same kind of page, you know. People see, you know, our species evolving at the moment sure. uh, on, onto, onto a new form of money. So, yeah, I'd love to... Uh, I wonder what was going on in those societies that, you know, once uh, King Croesus said, right, bam, here we go, gold coins, people. What else come with that? Yeah, I mean, you got to think it, it, it always would have fostered substantial change, right? Because if, if money is an emblem of our time and sacrifice, if money is a projection of our own limitation out into the world such that we can maneuver through it and create order from it, uh, if money changes our relationship to time because the quality of, let's say the relative destructibility of the money, because the money is re representing our time, if the money can be destroyed in 50 years or last for a thousand, it necessarily changes our own relationship to our time, right? And our perception of our time and, and how our values propagate through our actions as represented in the money, you know? So it's inconceivable that it wouldn't have had very profound impacts and i'd love to have a time machine to go back and and, mm. and determine why but here's the other thing i mean gold was always in in most places gold was always right there next to the top of the religious hierarchy you know things were were uh made out of gold or draped in gold or like gold was it's buried you know, with gold buried with gold you know ancient egypt and all this kind of stuff like gold with the alchemists considered gold the the imperial metal the incorruptible like the the pristine substance the perfection of nature and so the the two are so intimately wound up and uh i mean i'm still exploring why that is and i i touch on it a little bit in the piece but i do think that's why bitcoin like gold represents um you know, a type of pristine, absolute matter, right? Doesn't corrode, doesn't corrupt, doesn't, uh, you know, can last forever, that kind of thing. Um, and so it's absolute in a certain way. And, and another word for God is like the absolute, right? The one and only, the alpha and the omega, that kind of thing. And so this idea of something that can be absolute is also a religious idea or you know, an idea that at least has religious tendencies. And so when we confront another thing that's absolute like Bitcoin, maybe that's why it, it conjures up that those thoughts. And I, I don't think it's only for that reason. I think it's very much, and why Bitcoin I think will be far more powerful than gold in this relationship is because Bitcoin, the principles by which Bitcoin has been erect, erected or instantiated are overt, right? Like we were saying before, like the principle that you know, if you hold your private keys and you hold them properly, nobody can violate your sovereignty, your ownership over those things. And like, that's very overt. And so it's not just the fact that we have an absolute, but that we have an absolute that's instantiated through the application of certain principles. And I think those certain, the foundational principle there is the sovereignty of the individual. And how is that sovereignty instantiated? It's instantiated through an inviolable truth. Right? So you have these two concepts of truth and freedom continually emerging in the religious domain and also in the domain of, of what Bitcoin now represents to 
to either create an absolute or which stems from the absolute. And I think that's part of the reason why it conjures up this, you know, I hate, as you said, the R word is a dirty word. So I hate even saying religious language, but let's say uh, thoughts regarding the fundamental frameworks that orient our behavior within this reality. I think that's why part of the reason why it conjures those things up. And we're only now beginning to understand why. And I might be thinking about this stuff for the rest of my life. You know, it's by the, as I keep saying, the, the piece is by no means definitive. It's, it's, if anything, it's just my attempt at uh, clarifying some of my logic on it and inviting others to pile on. And, you know, I know I'm going to get a lot of people that are really pissed off that I even touched the religious stuff. How dare you? You don't know about this or that. And then other people are going to be like, you're so fucking stupid. Religion is dumb. But there'll be some um, that take the, the line of thinking seriously. And um, I can't wait to, to hear what they got. <laughs> I got a very important question for you. Yeah. Do you have a beer in that fridge behind you? I do, but it's early where I am. <laughs> <laughs> if it was even close to beer o'clock, I'd have one with you. But I just checked I just, the time over there. It's like 20 past one in the afternoon. What's, what's I know, on? but I'm a nighttime. I, <laughs> I got to get all productive work done before I, because I'm, so, I'm such a lightweight these days. The, the booze just like, you know, turns me into mush sort of thing. I had one. I did. What, what's today? Thursday. Did I do one with Foss and Booth last night? Yeah, I think you did. Yeah, I didn't manage to catch up. I don't know if it was uh, last night or the night before. I'm losing track of time, but um, it was like 10.30 or 11 o'clock my time, so I had a few beers yeah. on that one. All right, man. Well, where to take this now? Because there's, there's still plenty to talk about. Uh, and there's, <laughs> there's one... Um, huh. This one I've been talking with Knut about a lot, uh, and this idea of... Um, an afterlife. A lot of these religions kind of convince people, for lack of a better word, into believing that there is something after our time on this planet. Have you been down that rabbit hole when you've been exploring this? Uh, and uh, if so, how do you feel about that? I think this falls into the category of uh, overly literal interpretations of a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. that's my opinion you know a lot of people would have a take issue with that but um i mean like to my most of my opinions here have been informed by my the psychedelic experiences that i've had and you know to put it simply i think when we die our body dissipates here on earth but and and to the extent that our consciousness is local it goes with it but i think what what psychedelic experiences might provide access to if done right. And by no means it's a guarantee. Is it a guarantee? But they give you access to the possibility that consciousness or some aspect of consciousness persists after death, right? This kind of idea that the body is not only a generator of itself, but it's also a receiver in some capacity, you know? So like maybe all the parts are in place like, you know, the overly simplified um, analogy to a TV, right? TV's got all sorts of things that make sure that you can see a picture when it comes out. But the picture's not generated on the TV, it's sent to it. It receives it via a signal, right? So something like that. But what is the thing that 
you know, that doesn't die with, with the physical body. You know, I think that the, we've always grappled with this stuff. And I, it, it's interesting to, you got to give credit, I think, to why certain words and ideas even exist, right? Why do certain symbols, words, uh, ideas inevitably emerge in human consciousness? I mean, I think it's rational to say it's because we're attempting to grapple with something that's going on. And I think the idea of a soul or spirit is kind of that. It's saying like, sure, most of, most of the body and the functions of the brain die with the body. But is there a spark that animates it all uh, that persists afterwards? You know, and my psychedelic experiences have left me open to the possibility that that's true. I certainly would never proclaim to know one way or the other, but it, it, it seems possible to me that it's the case that there's a spark that animates us. And I, I think it's the same spark in everybody. You know, this is, again, I'm, I'm way out on a speculative limb here, but my, my default assumption is that there is some sort of divine spark that animates us all, right? That kind of pure conscious awareness that I was talking about before. The one that doesn't associate with any of the things that are unique to me. It's, the, it's something behind my own conscious mind that is the exact same that's behind yours that I'm talking to right now. And maybe that even, we can even get close to that or open up the aperture to let that come through. And maybe that's a means of engaging in more genuine and loving relationships between one another at, when we're living. I think there's something to that idea. But I think it's most likely the case, if there's any truth to that assumption, is that when our physical body dies, it's basically like, well, we don't need that spark anymore. So it goes back to wherever it came from. And then when another living being comes into existence, they take another piece of that spark. Does, does my spark, after I've used it, retain any, uh, any vestige or any imprint of any of my actions during life? Maybe, maybe not. Um, you know, the, who knows? I think, I, I think the whole like get into heaven idea. Give me a second here. I don't know. I, I, I think the same it's possible that the same laws that govern like on earth might govern that spark afterwards. But I, I think it's more so the case that like you experience heaven on earth to the extent that you access the principles or wisdom that stand, that emerge from that spark. Right. And if you, you know, again, the, the language here fails us all the time, but if you kind of take the position that, you know, I sometimes define love as a recognition of the lack of separation between all things, right? And this is obviously not the romantic kind of love, but just like <laughs> kind of the eternal kind of love. And if you take that as being true, then like, I think if you allow yourself to be guided by the wisdom that emerges from that during life, then I think the kind of the assumption or the, the thing maybe those stories or assertions are trying to elicit is the living them out now so that you can experience 
the idea of heaven whilst you're living, not that it's some kind of reward for good behavior when you when you're gone, you know, and maybe if you do that properly on earth, whatever domain of existence governs what, what if anything happens after death, maybe those same principles will be the ones that will, uh, that you'll, the ones that will beneficially interact with, the, with whatever domain you experience after death. And therefore they'll be equally applicable there as they have been on earth. And therefore they will equally elicit a heaven-like existence as they did on earth. So that's, that's my perspective on, on, on that thing. Sure you don't want that there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man, it's, uh, yeah, it's some, some deep, deep shit. Well, um, we just, we just like, I, again, it's tough to me for me to even like say this with that much conviction, because of course I don't know anything. Right. But really? I, I, well, do that's the point, right? None of us do. No, I know. But what I'm going to say is like, I, I, I think, you know, one of the major pitfalls of most people on both sides of the aisle, atheist and religious is taking an overly simplistic literal interpretation of all of this wisdom mm -hmm. and it leads both sides astray it, and it leads it causes them to miss the actual wisdom that's attempting to to come through them and it's a shame because that's the vast majority as far as i can tell yes yes it is and uh yeah like i said uh, i've not I've not been drawn down this rabbit hole just yet. It's uh, it's interesting to sit here and, and bounce these ideas off of you and read your piece, obviously, uh, and having got to know you over the last few years and, and see this kind of like transformation going on within you. Uh, it's pretty crazy. Uh, <laughs> You're a real crazy person. <laughs> <clears throat> well, if you think back to like the first show we did together, that was right at the beginning. Uh, I think we might have even been like week one or week two of lockdown. Uh, it, it, you go back and you listen to that first rip we did. Uh, it was, um, man, it's like talking, it's like listening to a couple of kids. It's, Is it? It's far I have to out. Really listen to it. It's far <laughs> out. Like, you know, we were talking about, uh, we're talking about Boeing getting bailed out. And we're like, this is bullshit, John. And like, you know, all of this kind well, of stuff. Well, I mean, it's. Uh, it's probably all still valid right yeah it, uh, completely valid and we were really questioning what was going on like uh, we're like mm, does this seem like legit to you right now I'm like nah <laughs> right. but neither of us wanted to come out and say you know what we wanted to say at the time like this this whole thing this seems like a huge power grab we 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 felt it you could you, you know you go yeah. back and listen to it but now here we are having this conversation like uh, a year and a half later and wow man like uh yeah, you've left me in your wake. You well, know. where will we be five years from now? You know, that's the Crazy. scary part. <laughs> it, it truly is. It truly is completely nuts to, to just two years from now. Like, where are we going to be? Yeah, I know. It's crazy. You're staring but down man, another halving. Mm, I know. It's wild. And uh, it's wild I think to a think lot. now, like a halving, even like it, it, that's like the freaking the the waxing and the waning of the moon to us now right you know mm. like you, we are grabbing onto these events like this is yeah. part of our beings now yeah because we know shit is going to change after well, this the is, next halving 
Exactly. And this is the thing that is very much related to this conversation about beliefs and primary frameworks and all that kind of stuff is like, and this is a tricky part too, because it's like once, if you feel like you're identifying ones that are, for lack of a better term, true, then how do you preserve that, you know, and how do you foster an appreciation for that? And I think the answer historically has been ritual. And that's another thing that I think we've, we've lost to our detriment, you know, like the, a modern person has know, basically things, uh, no ritual in their life at all, right? Like Christmas time to get drunk and open gifts is like right. <laughs> one of the primary rituals, but like most people don't even say grace anymore, like before they eat a meal. And I've gotten into the habit of doing that again. Not, I don't invoke any higher power. I just express my gratitude for, for what's on the table and how I'm going to use it, right? How I'm going to take the sustenance and actually, you know, transmute nutrition into good in the world, something silly like that, right? Uh, but I think it's important to, if, if something is sacred, you should give it its due. And I think part of understanding this framework for engaging reality you're, you're obviously, you're, you're teasing out what is sacred in, in, in that process. And if you find things that you think are sacred, then I think you amplify their meaning in your life and you help propagate and instill them, or at least make them available to others by ritualizing them, you know? And so I certainly see far more ritual in our, in our you know, Bitcoin denominated future. And I see far more ritual in my own future uh, one, you know, once I determine which rituals I want to uh, inst instigate and then refine over time, and once I have the environment that's conducive to certain rituals versus others, because of course not not all are as easy as you know just saying a grace, for example. But I think you know, and that's how a a cultural belief uh, that's how a belief system emerges as central to a culture, right? And again you wind up with something very akin to religion once you have certain foundational principles, uh, beliefs, uh, frameworks, and then you add on rituals that help sanctify them and perpetuate them into the future. Well, that starts to look an awful lot like religion, right? But if we can avoid the pitfalls, like constructing those, those rituals is very important because you wanna be able to allow them to speak to the importance of what's happening without without the ritual becoming the thing right and i think this has happened a lot with religion and, and religious ritual is that the ritual like the eating of christ's body or the you know whatever religion has all the different rit rituals religion has that becomes the thing that is sanctified rather than the thing that that is speaking to Right. Like when I when I say grace at dinner and like kids are told to say grace and you end up that being the absolute th that's the goal. The goal is the grace. No, the goal is to remember and embody and appreciate the meaning behind the action of, of saying grace. And for example, like I said, one of the meanings for me is something has given its life and I've 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 taken the life by virtue of my you know, driving, you know, paying for it, uh, for, for such that I can continue on my life. How am I going to express my degree of appreciation and, and how am I going to sanctify 
that sacrifice in a way that allows, that continues to remind me about how important that sacrifice and that relationship is and what it means for, um, what it means for how I, the, the, the significance I should place on my own actions and how I should think about them and what I want them to, to foster. You know, that's what the ritual is meant to uh, remind us of. But so often the ritual becomes the thing and we lose the, the thing that it's trying to speak to or relate to. And so I think, um, you know, as Bitcoin continues to do its thing and as all these conversations in this space just, you know, feverishly happen, I think one of the things that's going on is we're, we're coalescing around certain principles and ideas. Like one that's very clear in Bitcoin is honesty. If you show up and you're not honest, fuck you. And you get all the fuck yous from all the cyber hornets. If you show up and you're a fucking idiot, but you're honest, come on in. We'll, you know, teach you, we'll give you this, we'll help you out, we'll be your friend, all this kind of stuff. Um, and honesty is, is so many things too, right? Like you, a lot of people come into the space with a lot of ego. And like, to me, that is also a manifestation of dishonest behavior because like if ego is kind of like being dishonest with your, what you know and what you don't know. It's being dishonest with the truth that you're trying to pursue. Because if you, if you, you say, oh, I'm trying to understand something, but you have a big ego, well, then well, which is it? Are you trying to protect your perception of yourself or what others perceive you of? Or are you actually trying to follow that and, and, and find that truth? The honest approach, the honest way to engage that process would be to be humble and try to pursue that truth, you know? So, but that's just one example of an ethic that's emerging in the Bitcoin space. And that all of these imperfect people in the space, you know, all these, you know, crazy cyber hornet people that they, you know, toxic maximalists, even though they're all imperfect, flawed, have all sorts of, you know, character drawbacks for lack of a better term, the fact that they adhere and commit to the ethic of honesty is an interesting phenomenon that seems to be permeating this space. And so I think that process, as you say, from having to having to having to having, will continue to happen. And hopefully over time, um, different principles will emerge and ascend through that process. And it'll be far more clear to us which principles, values, ethics have done so. And maybe at the top of that hierarchy, at a certain point in time, it's like, oh, it's clearly honesty. It's clearly individual sovereignty. It's clearly the pursuit of liberation. It's clearly acting as truthfully with as much integrity as possible. You know, those things will emerge and then we will sanctify them through our, our various interpretations and our various rituals that, that, that get put in place. And I can't wait for that day because I think reminding yourself, and I'll invoke a very triggering word here, but I think you ritualize things, you ritualize the highest principles because they speak to something beyond your comprehension, i.e., divine. And I think ritualizing them increases the richness with which you experience life. And this is part of the reason why this whole enterprise is so important, because it's not just like so that you know, so that I can say I have like a good grip or a good answer on the religious question. No, it's because it, it animates and enriches and brings a vibrance and a meaning and a purpose and a joy to your experience of life that is unparalleled, that is inaccessible any other way.
And what, what could be a greater thing to strive for than a more enriched, joyful, purposeful, meaningful experience of daily life? I don't think they, I mean, I don't, no Lambo or mansion is going to trump that, you know? So that's, that's how I'm thinking about it. And that's why you included the, uh, the quote from the matrix, right? You didn't come well, here. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it. Then you can riff on it. Yeah. You didn't come here to make a choice. You've already made it. You're here to try to understand why you made it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that has various applications. And in the piece, I kind of, a lot of people adopt Bitcoin, right? You and I are perfect examples. We knew Bitcoin and Bitcoin only was the thing years ago, but we're still learning about why that's the case, you know? And so I think sometimes the action can precede the knowledge of why you took the action, you know, call it subconscious wisdom whatever you want to call it. But I think whether it's in relation to what Bitcoin means and what it represents, or whether it's in relation to why we're here as, as living conscious beings on earth, uh, maybe, you know, maybe in both cases, we made the choice in advance of understanding why. And here we are now tasked with the, uh, or we have the important task in front of us of determining why. And, you know, I said this on the, the, the hodl hang the other day with the boys. Um, but if, if, if there is no to what end, right, if you don't know the why, what are you pursuing? You know, and you, you could apply this to so many things, but are we, are we better off now today in modern society than the Minoans in 2000 BC Crete? Right. Maybe they only live to be 35. I think it's probably more than that. But let's just say for to make it extreme, they live to 35. But if their life was imbued with more meaning, if they engaged every day with a greater richness and vibrance and meaning and purpose of life, then what is the benefit of being on this planet for a few more tours around the sun versus that? And I would say like, if we're, I, I don't think it's a proper metric to, uh, to determine or judge advancement as a civilization or, or as an individual that you were able to squeeze out a few more years. I mean, that's a horrible metric. You know, I think if you had your, your ducks properly in a row, you choose 20 years of, uh, for lack of a better term, more rich, more enlightened, more divinely inspired existence than 80 years of, of, yeah, of a life that is seemingly, well, is less rich and which has as its primary objective simply more years, more stuff, more experience. You know, even in that realm, if the experiences that, that you have are, are less imbued with meaning than the experiences that another person might have, then are you actually better off? So when we think about all this technological advancement that we seemingly have and where we may be headed, I, I mean, I think I feel like as a civilization, we've, we've completely, and again, this speaks to the detrimental um, results of, of doing away with the religious enterprise, 
but we've completely removed from the conversation the to what end about our entire enterprise of, of humanity. What the hell are we doing all this for? Right? And, and I think not having an answer to that question, and again, not allowing the religious enterprise to be a part of that discussion, means that we end up in this crazy world of materialism, relativism, nihilism, power games that devolve into the chaos that we're currently seeing and, and may very well see more of in the coming years. And maybe that's why it's instigating a rediscovery and a reassessment of all these things, because we're realizing that, hey, it's more important than, than you thought it was. And, you know, just one last thing on, on this idea of um, imposter syndrome, right? And, uh, and this goes for everybody listening to this show right now, because you're here for a reason. You know, why us? Why did we find Bitcoin? What, why did it lead us into this, you know, train of thought and give, you know, instill in us this kind of um, need or want or... Uh, motivation to tell as many other people about it as possible and you know usher in this new way of living uh, of organizing society mm. yeah i mean divine intervention question. dare i say john <laughs> <laughs> hey maybe you know may very well be but uh I, sometimes i think like maybe one of the uh, impacts or results or effects of confronting some of the deepest truths. And if we accept that those deepest truths, you know, I, I made a claim in the piece, like one of the fundamental claims is that, you know, one of the, one of the primary articles of faith, I think has to be that existence and the, the God or reality that generates it is good or loving, right? It's not bad. And I, I think it's difficult to have any of these conversations if you don't have that kind of underlying axiomatic assumption. And uh, I mean, faith in humanity has been challenged pretty hard, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean like the whole shebang, right? The existence right. of like life life in, in general is, uh, is good. And I think that is an article of faith that maybe you can't rationalize around, like you, you have to accept it on faith. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think what we're, it's possible that what we're doing is tr truth is a means of maximally engaging that. That's why the pursuit of truth is so often tantamount to access to God, because somehow that's what opens the, the line of communication, the bandwidth. And, um, you know, I don't know what's going on here, but maybe this truth machine and the way in which it's affecting us is opening our bandwidth to those, that generative force, those eternal principles, that unified consciousness, that structure of reality, that presence of God, that eternal wellspring of possibility, whatever you want to call it, maybe somehow we're the initial cohort. And again, I, I make this claim in the piece that are being uh, opened up, you know, mentally and spiritually to something, to that place. And uh, 
it's having a pretty pr profound effect on us. And as to why it compels our behavior, I mean, what I was getting to there is I, like, I think maybe when you confront that, when you confront truth, when you confront something that's so nakedly true, maybe it compels behavior because you can't. When you was can't... the last time we ever saw that? Think about it in your life. When was the last time you ever faced with the ultimate, with, with truth? With an absolute. Well, this this is the this is what makes it all so gnarly, you know. And and when you, and the reason why you can't, the reason why it compels behavior, I think, is because you can't punch a big enough hole in it for it to be pushed down your your value hierarchy, right? So again, if we assume that the value hierarchy is what orients behavior, and you are always acting in accord with ever or in accord with the hierarchy of values that you have, again, not the ones that you think or want to have, but what are the truth of your behavior speaks the truth, right? And so I think why truth compels certain behaviors is because it enters into your mind and you're not able to push it down the hierarchy. It stays up at the top by virtue of the fact that you can't punch holes in it. And then that's why it compels behavior because if your hierarchy, your value hierarchy is what determines your behavior and a truth and, and uh a truth that can't be argued with, right? Or an absolute truth, an, an absolute objective value of some kind, you can't argue with it. And so you, you become sub, subordinate to it. You become subject to it. You, you, you must submit your behavior to it. And as, as crazy as that sound, and anybody who's not like super way down the rabbit holes, you know, the idea of like Bitcoin being these crazy cultist uh, zealots is going to emerge in their mind as, you know, when they hear this, but maybe that's part of what's going on here. You know, it's, it's certainly a great mystery. And, and as much as I know, like I saw someone retweet the article and they said, um, there's some like uh, MMA reporter. And he was like, this is like actually insane. That's what his <laughs> quote tweet of the article was. <laughs> as much as I know that many, many people like family members will read the article and stuff. And of course, I'm saying this in the context of, of a, most people who think religion is the most asinine thing you could ever think of. So of course, me not only making the case that it's far more valid and rational than you thought, and then taking Bitcoin and smashing it together with it, of course, mm -hmm. I know I'm going to be considered insane. But like, I've accepted that my, my pursuit of these ideas, my pursuit of this truth, the degree to which I'm compelled to do this, supersedes, you know, my fear of the feedback or criticism that I might receive from doing so. So that's why we persist. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners share that feeling because of course they, they're all seen as weirdos. I mean, even, even all like most of our normie friends probably think we're a little bit tweaked at this point, you know, <laughs> but as, at least we have each other, you know, to keep each other Absolutely. safe. <laughs> at least we have each other. We don't know what, you know, half of us look like. We have no idea what each other's names are, where we live. We've never met each other, but we have each other. And this is what, yeah. it's, uh, you know, it's, but it's funny that, MF, that MMA fan or, or fighter or whatever it was who, who, who tweeted that and said, this is absolutely insane. I can see them doing that in a negative kind of manner. But if they've read that piece, when they come to facing the truth, when Bitcoin does, you know, stare them down, and like you say, they just can't knock it off that top of the totem pole, whatever, they'll draw a loop straight back to what they read, and they will go, ah, I get it. Aha, uh -huh. if it wasn't for Maybe. that guy, and his, his or her descent into the rabbit hole will be sped up because of your piece of writing and because of like, you know, if they've actually read it and they're like, no, this is fucking crazy and whatever else, it's still in there. 
you know, yeah. it's in. There. I don't think they read it because it's, it's forty pages, and if uh, not very many people are up up to the task of of reading it, even you know, hardcore Bitcoiners probably are going to wait for Guy Swan to 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 uh, record absolutely. Guy, like come on, that. what what's going on? I'm sure he's on his Christmas break. <laughs> but all right, John, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to start wrapping this up. Um, if you had one orange pill left to give, who'd you give it to, and why? Feel like I disappoint you with these answers. <laughs> you know what? I, I typically say, you know, whoever needs it most because adoption yeah. happens one one pleb at a time. But I'd give it to my mom because that would make a lot of my conversations with her much less frustrating. Right. And she, you know, she hodls a little bit, but it's primarily to shut me up. I don't think she she doesn't really get it. And other family members get it a lot more, but she, um, you know, I love her to death, but she's kind of still glued into the mainstream stuff. And that's, that's hard for someone like me to deal with. Yeah. But so I'd give her the orange pill and, and then our, our exchanges might be a little bit more energetic and, and happy. All right. And then one last I love you, thing. mom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Big shout out for Mama Valis. Yeah. Uh, one last thing. I'm old enough to remember when the Bitcoin rapid fire actually had a rapid fire section on it. So I'm going to call mm. you out and, uh, you know, throw some words at you. You know how this works. Sure. You ready to go? Let's do it. Honesty. Yes. Peace. Good. Pill. Orange. <laughs> <laughs> freedom everywhere love eternal war bad nuance nuanced truth paramount hate ugly lies despicable Toxicity. Useful. I'm out. That was easy. I don't know why people were <laughs> giving me shit all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right, man. It's been great to uh, to hang out and, and catch up. Uh, we'll we'll have to do a Christmas beer at some point. Uh, yes, it's difficult being on the the different time zones as uh, as we are, and uh, I'm really looking forward to. To meet in person one day, man. It's um, it's been long, long overdue. Yeah, I agree. I'll uh, well, let's we'll talk afterwards about coordinating Christmas beer because I I do a few calls on on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, so we should set that up. All right, excellent. Well, take care, man. Have a great afternoon, and uh, thanks for all you do. You know, your, your podcast is still right up there, one of my favorites. Love all the guests you have on. Love everything that you do. Love the piece of um, writing that you put out there. Well done. I know that was a big task for you. Very proud of you. Pat yourself on the back. And a uh, huge thank you from me and all the other players. Thank you very much, brother. I appreciate it. And it's always such a pleasure to come and hang. All right, man. Take care. See you, brother. Well, plebs, what did you think of that? How's our boy JV doing? I mean, reach out, help him out. If anybody wants to join in this kind of discussion, 
then uh, he's finding himself right in the middle of it. He's enjoying it. Uh, he wants to keep, you know, discovering and exploring this part of the rabbit hole, and uh, very, very open to any kind of feedback or criticism or you know blind spots or anything really. This is the point, right? Conversation. Uh, it's great to uh, be involved in this one. Definitely way out on a limb for for me as well to to try and uh, pick through this piece of writing with him and uh, you know try and get his thoughts down on a, on a podcast like this uh yeah you know tweet it around share it with whoever let's uh let's go let's keep let's keep building let's keep thinking let's keep this discussion open this is what uh is so intellectually stimulating about bitcoin and if you've got something to add in your specific domain Get out there, start writing about it. We need everybody coming up with uh, with their own little insights and knowledge in, in whatever it is that uh, that you do. So big thanks to all the plebs. Merry Christmas to everybody. Enjoy your end of year parties. Let's go for 2022. If you want to get across to Miami, make sure you hit the link in the show notes. You'll get 10% discount using that link or code BITTEN at checkout. The other show sponsors, all in the show notes as well. Make sure you go check out Swan. Hit that link, you'll get a free 10 bucks. Coin Corner, hit that link, you'll get a free 10 euros or pounds after your first 100 pound transaction. Bitcoin Reserve have got you covered. Make sure you go and check out what they're up to as well across Europe. Shift Crypto, you're going to get a discount on the hardware wallet. And Relay, across Europe, you can stack and save on fees. See you in 2022, guys.